Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. I'm speaking with Brian David Marshall, official commentator and Pro Tour historian of Magic the Gathering. BDM started his career in comics and eventually opened the famed comic store Neutral Ground. BDM gives us a rare glimpse into the early days of Magic when it exploded in popularity back in 1994 and 1995. BDM tells us about coverage today and also in an interesting tale of two Enter the Battlefield movies. I caught up with BDM last year, right before PAX 2016. I hope you enjoy my wonderful conversation with the legendary Brian David Marshall. Hi everyone, welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I am sitting here with Brian David Marshall. Brian, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm uh, looking forward to doing this. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to just start at the beginning, but unlike other guests, I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved with comic books? Wow. So, uh, I mean, I, I guess I read comics my whole life. Uh, I, you know, have very vivid memories of just being attracted to the, to the medium, you know, seeing a cover for, I remember seeing a Spider-Man cover, Spider-Man versus Man-Wolf, like at a barber shop and like Beetle Bailey comics and like Archie comics. And, you know, I was always very attracted to this fusion of, of word and story. And then, you know, as I, as a young, you know, as an adolescent, I read a lot of superhero comics, got very interested in, uh, the Stanley Origins, Son of Origin. He wrote these like omnibuses where he collected the first issues or first appearances of all, a lot of the major characters. And he did these interstitial comments where he would talk about the creation of them. And it was just kind of like, oh, people make comic books. They don't just exist. You know, as a, you know, I'm probably 10 here, right? Like, you know, I'm just like, Oh, you know, and then he talked about this sort of the collaborative process with Jack Kirby. And I'm like, Oh, and so that kind of got in my brain and was always ruminating in there. You know, flash forward a few years, I, you know, of reading comics very sporadically. And then I walked into a, you know, like a candy store near my house and X-Men 141 was on the shelf and it was uh, Days of Future Past, which is, you know, probably the most, other than the death of Jean Grey, the most seminal X-Men comic, but. I didn't know it was coming out, right? I wasn't in a comic store. This is like, you know, on a rack at a newsstand. And I see the cover and uh, it's just gorgeous. It's Wolverine and Kitty Pride. I, I believe it was Kitty Pride. Uh, like up against a wall that's just destroyed. There's like pictures of dead X-Men, like wanted posters with deceased written across them of like all these like major X-Men characters. Sentinels are all over the place and it, it just hooked me. I mean, like I could literally feel the fish hook just go right through my cheek <laughs> and like have the barb pull. And I just knew I was done. Like, I can't even explain it. It was like, <gasps> it was the same experience I would have finding magic, like that same sensation finding magic years later. But uh, that got me in like kind of hook, line and sinker. And I started reading comics pretty regularly, pretty soon was buying every comic that came out every week, was going back and, you know, collecting things and filling in runs and getting my X-Men 94 and, you know, doing the whole thing. And I was like, wow, you know, and I was I was in high school at, at this point and just decided that uh, I really wanted to be involved with comics mm -hmm. and started working at a comic shop uh, and then eventually found my way into uh, an internship at a small comic book company that was starting up in Brooklyn 
And it was insane because it was like one of those things where it's just like, hey, you know, can I work for you? And the guy's like, sure. And then like a couple days later, I'm working with George Perez, Keith Giffen, Dave Cockrum, Steve Ditko. Uh, just the list goes on and on. Like all these insane people that were Dave Cockrum, you know, of, you know, the created the new X-Men with Chris Claremont. Um, all these people that were just like idols of mine. I'm just this kid. And I got to write a comic story for uh, that Rich Buckler penciled and inked. Uh, I got to edit comics. I got to correspond with the creator of Superman, which was like this insane experience. And and then I was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. You know, this is this is absolutely what I want to do. And I just threw myself into it. I, you know, was corresponding with creators. One of my jobs there was sort of to go through the slush pile. And so I would find these people and I'm like, why, why isn't this person working here? And the company I was working for was like, no, we're only sort of taking A-list talent. I'm like, yeah, but there's some quote unquote B-list talent here that's going to be A-list talent if you, if you understand what's going on. And he's like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. So I was just like, basically scooped up that pile of stuff and went and formed my own company, which was this uh, small outfit in Brooklyn called Eternity Comics. Uh, we started with a book called X Mutants, and uh, eventually that company became a company known as uh, Malibu Publishing. It was just kind of this crazy roller coaster, and you know some of those people that went through our you know our hands there were like are people who are like pretty big names in the comic industry now. Ron Lim, Evan Dorkin, Jimmy Palmiotti, who's the writer on Harley Quinn now, has got his first work with us. Uh, Richard Case, John Arcudi. Dean Haspiel, I'm going to forget a million people, but it was, it was a pretty cool experience. And it was like one of those, you know, moments where you're like, yeah, I, you know, kind of like the I knew it moment. You're like, oh, yeah, I knew that guy was going to be great. And I uh, got to work with a lot of amazing people, a lot of amazing people that I'm still friends with to this day. And, uh, and that, that was, it was just kind of a, a crazy thing. Eventually I, I sold the company to my partners because I didn't want to move out to California, which is a recurring theme of my life. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that sentence would, you know, if we did this for like five hours, I would say that, that sentence three times and never in regard to the same business. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, uh, was working in public relations and doing some other stuff. And then eventually wanted to get back into comics, started to work for a chain of comic book stores using my public relations expertise. And then I found magic. Amazing. And going back a little bit more about comics, you started off being a fan, enjoying the stories, enjoying the characters, their arcs, their lives, their journeys. And then you suddenly plunged into a world. You are now creating those stories. How did that feel for you? Uh, it, was, it was amazing. It was like, uh, you know, I guess weird to talk about. I don't actually talk about this. Normally. I'm not religious at all. I don't I, I wouldn't say I'm an atheist. I wouldn't say I'm an agnostic. I would just, I, I'd, I'd like to see some kind of evidence, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was a big, uh, moment for me as a teenager to sort of come to that, like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I grew up in a pretty Catholic, uh, household. And, uh, you know, and then there's this moment where I was like, oh, you know, I want to be in comics. And I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to work for a comic book store. Even if they don't have a job for me, I'm going to work there for free. I'll, I'll just do whatever, just, you know, get a discount on books, whatever, you know, whatever it is. I just want to be around comics. When I'm there, I'm going to meet people who are in comics, right? This is all, this is me, like, I'm probably like 14 or 15 at this point, right? I'm going to meet people who are in comics. And then, you know, I'll offer the same thing. You know, I'll just say, look, 
I will just do whatever you need me to do. Just give me an opportunity. And then when I'm there, I will just make sure that I am ready to jump on any live grenade that rolls in to the, into the bunker, right? Like I'm just going to jump on any live grenade. It's like, Oh, is, is that person not ready to do a script? I'll do it. Here's, here's five pitches that I have ready. And then that's how my career will start. And that's exactly what happened, right? It's exactly what happened. And it was like this really weird crossroad for me. Actually, I'm like, is there a defined plan? Like, as I'm still, again, I'm still a teenager and I'm like, or, oh, wait a minute. It's like finding something you really are excited about, something you care about, like visualizing this very clear plan of action and putting yourself out there, right? Like, you know, I, I you know, I find that so much of life ultimately comes down to a Nike slogan, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like the biggest cliche of all time, but it's also the most on the nose piece of advice you can ever give anybody who wants to do something. Well, do it, right? Just go out there and throw yourself into the thing you're excited about because you're going to be able to do more work, put more energy, put more passion into it than you're going to be for anything that you're going to do for just a paycheck. And eventually, and there's opportunities, you know, if you're really excited about that to make money and find ways to make a living. And, and honestly, if you're doing something you love, there's, you know, I would rather be making comics than making $19 million a year selling, uh, EpiPens for, (laughs) (laughs) you know, for, for 400% more than they were being sold for, you know, two years ago or whatever that is, you know, you know what I mean? Like I would, I would, that's a real statement. Like I've given a choice between those two paths, right? Like, oh, you could be the head of, you know, this huge company that's, you know, and and making all this money and not doing something you love, or you could be making a, a good living doing something you love surrounded by people that share your passion. I would I would take that every time. Wonderful. When did you get started playing Magic? Uh, I believe it was summer of 1994. Uh, I was uh, doing public relations for a chain of comic stores in New York uh, called Jim Hanley's Universe, and uh, we were doing pretty major like comic signings and uh, you know doing like a lot of event driven stuff where. Like the image comics had just come out from Malibu publishing the first issues. <laughs> uh, but, uh, all those books had just come out and we, so we had like a big Jim Lee signing and we had a big Death of Superman event and we had a big, uh, Rob Liefeld signing. And so I, I just, I was getting my feet wet in event planning and event management and doing a bunch of stuff like that. But I was also like, the game guy there, right? Like I was the guy because we carried games and we did stuff. And so if someone had a question about games, I was the guy that they were like, oh, Brian, what? Someone wants to know about, you know, this White Wolf product or someone wants to know about this D&D thing. And there was like a week over the summer of 94 where people were like, hey, Brian, this guy wants to know about something called magic. And I'm like, I, I don't, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what this is. Um, you know, the last time I would ever say that in my life, right? You know, and for for this one week, it was like this like really insane concentration of people frantically coming in. And I'm like, wow, make a note, you know, like find out about magic, you know, <laughs> question mark. There was like, I think a white wolf product that sounded like that. Some guy came in and was like, really kind of a little twitchy and a little like, he's like really obviously very frustrated that he couldn't find magic. And uh, he asked, and they called me out and I talked to him and I'm like, no, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, and he grabbed me by my lapels and like picked me up and like 
shook me against the wall, like violently accosted me. He's like, why can't I find this game anywhere? I just want some more cards. What the hell? You know, like, boom, boom. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and like, uh, you know, people are like, uh, should we call the police? I'm like, no, we should call our distributor. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we should, we should order this game, whatever it, whatever it is. Uh, and we were able to track some down. And, uh, I actually, I guess before we got some in the store, the complete strategist, which is the store I still go to now for my pre-releases was this, you know, game store that's, you know, 40 years old in, in New York at this point. But we went there and got like the last couple of unlimited starters that they had, uh, some unlimited boosters and started playing. And then it was, I probably haven't gone two weeks without playing Magic since then. Wow. And then, uh, and then I kind, kind of like, so we, we became obsessed with the game, you know, uh, a group of my friends and then a lot of the people I was working with. And then one of the people I worked with at Jim Hanley's Universe and I were like, oh, maybe we should run a Magic tournament. Like this seems, you know, we'd heard that people were starting to play competitively. There were these rules that came out. We knew a guy who was a judge. I don't know. Maybe we should, you know, maybe we should do something. So we, November 1994, I think the weekend before Thanksgiving, uh, we just took a flyer on it. Like we were like, okay, let's rent this ballroom at the Roosevelt Hotel. Uh, we're going to give away a set of Arabian Nights. And, uh, yeah. And it, it just like 300 people showed up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 300 people showed up. Like we, we put out flyers everywhere. We, we have, uh, I, I have the fly. If you look on my Facebook feed, you can find uh, the first flyer. Like it's got like some crazy email address. If you want to send us electronic mail. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. It was like four, $17, I think, and $14 if you pre-registered. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we had like 300 people. We had no idea what we were doing. We figured out buys just before the first round started because everything was single elimination back then. And, uh, and somehow it worked. Wow. Somehow it worked. Everyone had a great time. We did another one in, so that was November. I guess we did another one in February of 95, which was our second one. And we had like 800 people show up. Oh my God. And goodness. it was for a set of legends, which is, you know, in hindsight, kind of a crappy prize. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't know, right? You know, we we're just like, oh, it's a set of legends. Awesome, right? A set of legends, a set of Arabian Nights. It's all the same. Uh, and, we had like, yeah, like 800 people show up for a single elimination tournament, <laughs> which was pretty crazy. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just awesome. And we couldn't get people to go home. Wow. Like people want, so we, we, we basically invented side events at that event, right? We were like, okay. So anyone who loses first is going to go in the first round automatically went into like a consolation tournament, right? If you lost the first round of single LM, you got thrown into this consolation bracket. And then, but then we were like, okay, we're going to, what if everyone gets two sealed packs, two sealed starters and builds a deck with that? All right. So let's do that tournament here and let's do this tournament. We just did a lot of tournaments and ran a ton of stuff and nobody wanted to go home. Wow. And people were like inventing, they're like, can you run a two-headed giant? I read about two-headed giant in the duelist. Yeah, we can run a two-headed giant. Who wants to sign up for two-headed giant? You know, and, you know, 20 teams would sign up for two-headed giant. It was crazy. Um, and uh, literally 1 a.m. and we couldn't get people. We're like, well, you have to go. They're going to charge us for the ballroom if we don't get you. <laughs> you have to go. And then people were in the hotel lobby and, uh, there are people who were at that tournament who met and got married, who are still married to this day, or, oh my goodness. or who met, married, divorced, and then remarried each other again <laughs> later. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was just this crazy time of like finding people who all shared this 
you know, were all aligned in their passion for this game, which was really exciting, really new. You know, this is a time where there was also just this like unbelievable um, leaps in deck technology all the time, right? Like, I mean, You've heard the stories, I'm sure, about like early days. They were terrible. Like the best player in New York for a little while was a guy named Steve Jones, who was a character actor and a commercial uh, actor who, uh, great guy, not someone you would, you know, look at as the best magic player, but he was the guy who figured out that Nevernell's disc and Mishra's factories were a combo. Oh. Right? So he could like disc away everything and then animate his Mishra's factories and start attacking. And, you know, as a result, he was like unstoppable for two tournaments. <laughs> so, you know, there was like that, that kind of like, like, oh my God, like, you know, the, that, that glimmer of excitement you get when you see a new deck today. Like, imagine that like just jammed into a vein, completely unadulterated. You've never had that experience before. It was just like such a rush uh, every single time uh, you went to one of these things. You're like, well, Atog, what? <laughs> you know, it, was, it was crazy. I was talking to Mark Rosewater not too long ago, and he told me to talk to Brian Weissman about the deck. And after doing a little bit of research about it, I realized that that's Basically, every blue-white control deck we see in the modern era. A- absolutely. It was – and this was all at a time where all magic information wasn't available to you like it is now. In 94, 95, the magic dojo barely existed. It kind of came in around, I think, the tail end of 95. So, you just had to use uh, Usenet groups. And mm-hmm. so, I remember being at neutral ground with a group of people like, what's the deck? Like, we need to figure this out. And like trying to piece it together because people didn't publish deck lists. There weren't, you know, you just didn't have that. Like decks were really secret. They were really, it was hoarded and um, and trying to piece it together and actually uh, ended up building a standard version of the deck for this guy, Nate Wilgruby, who was uh, played at Pro Tour 1 with it and uh, top 16. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Even when you were talking, Brian, about uh, Navinrail's disc and uh, Mishra's factory, clearing the board, attacking with a man land, that feels a lot like modern Jund these sure, days. Sure, sure, It does. It does. Uh, I mean, it, you know, but this was, I think, the first time anyone was figuring out, like, oh, this is this kind of really difficult to kill resource that I have on the board, and then I can just, you know, the, the idea of a symmetrical effect, like... Armageddon, Wrath of God, Nevernell's Disc. Those cards, that was like the big discovery period balance was not a card people played immediately. You know, like that was the whole uh, puzzling out. Because when you first play Magic and you look at a card like Wrath of God, you're like, well, why Why would I play Wrath of God when I'm going to be playing creatures? Right. right. You know, like that was, that was like that whole, that was the whole discovery process. And that yeah, it was kind of ex- just exhilarating. That's fascinating. Brian, could you recall what was the formats back then? Because, I mean, I didn't play back in 94, 95, 96, but what was – the game started in 93, right? Right. And so, what – I mean, there was no modern. There was no such thing as legacy or vintage. We played a format called Magic. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's what you would call type one now ah. or vintage now. Okay. Uh, and it was uh, – it was there was a banned and restricted list. Um, they pretty early on in the game, they realized one of each of the power cards. There were a lot of cards that were banned that are sort of curious in hindsight. Dingus Egg was banned for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, they, they got the anti cards out of the tournament environment 
And yeah, so it was basically just magic. Uh, and then very quickly around the release of the dark came, they introduced what was known as type two mm-hmm. and type two was, um, whatever base set, you know, and what I don't, I don't remember the exact configuration of sets, but very similar to what it is today, a more modern rotation of cards that were in standard. Uh, that were, and, and again, it was called type two and it was, people were really reluctant to play it. It was kind of like, eh. That's not a serious format. Serious magicians play, you know, with moxes. Right. So that was, that was the big, uh, attraction. But, you know, we started running type two tournaments pretty quickly and it was a great place for, it was, I mean, it was such a smart decision because it was such a great place for a new player to get in, right? You know, cause you know, mox cost like 25 bucks back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lot. <laughs> 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 wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would cost you probably like 400 bucks to build a really competitive uh, type one deck. You know, maybe 500 if you wanted it in beta. <laughs> <laughs> and these days, that's uh, maybe half the cost or a third of the cost of one card. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Too funny. That is hilarious. And then, Brian, you opened Neutral Ground in 1996. Uh, actually, in 95. 95. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was spring of 95 and it was in direct, uh, reaction to that, that idea that we just couldn't get people to leave our events uh-huh. because they had this opportunity to get together, you know, to the, the, the actual verb of Magic the Gathering, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, they would, they would get together and there was like people that they could trade with, people that they could exchange deck ideas with. Uh, lots of tournaments to play in, lots of, like, like, oh, I've always wanted to try Two-Headed Giant. I've always wanted to try Emperor. Oh, I've always wanted to try Grand Melee. You know, and there was like, and it was one day and you had to cram everything in, you know, to, to, to try to get as much as sampling as possible. And it was just like, wow, you know, I think people want this every day. And so, um, there were game stores in New York and Jim Haley's Universal Games and, Complete Strategist is, was the gold standard for game stores at the time. Um, but there was no place that sold sing- singles in New York and the idea of a tournament center didn't exist yet. So we think about like, you know, the Roanoke tournament center or the superstars tournament center in San Jose or, you know, the pastimes uh, place in Chicago. You know, that's all, you know, it's, it's a common, you know, you're like you go to a big city, you're going to be able to find, uh, you know, you're going to be able to find a place you know, where there's, you know, just tournaments and a big, you know, magic scene. But that just didn't exist yet. And so we created this place called Neutral Ground. It was not on the storefront. The first location was on the ninth floor of a loft building in Chelsea, which now is a very posh neighborhood. But at the time was reasonably not sketchy, but, you know, as close to sketchy as you could get and still feel comfortable asking people to come there. Uh-huh. Uh And uh, it was like 3,000 square feet. And it was like 500 square feet of it was retail and 2,500 square feet of it was tournament center. Wow. Tables, chairs, you know, and seven day a week schedule of events. We were open every day except Christmas day. Wow. We were open on Thanksgiving. Wow. Yeah. We, we would do New Year's day tournaments. We would like, yeah, we were just, we were crazy and it was, and we, and we would charge uh, admission. So it was $7 a day to come in and play. And if we had a tournament, you could just play in the tournament, but you could also just hang out, trade, do whatever. I think it was $35 if you wanted to buy a monthly pass, and then $250 if you wanted to buy an annual pass. Wow. And uh, we were like, I don't know if anyone will show up. 
And uh, we opened, and within an hour of opening the store, uh, Steve O'Mahony Schwartz and his brother Dan O'Mahony Schwartz came in with a check for $500 from their mom and popped it on the table and bought our first two annual memberships. Wow. And yeah, it was, and the store just kind of took off from there. That's amazing. Yeah. Brian, I wanted to read an excerpt from a book. The book title is, So Do You Wear a Cape? The Unofficial Story of Magic the Gathering. Oh, sure. This is Titus's book. There was a quote here that I want to read, and this is this is all Brian. So, Brian says, Uh-oh. We would run a sealed deck tournament every morning, which we thought was even more devoid of skill, and John Finkel won it every single time. We had no idea how he was doing it. Was he cheating? So, we went and watched him. And that was the first moment when we realized how terrible at magic we really were. Yeah. No, it, that's, that's absolutely true. I remember it. So, this is going back to the Grey Matter events, which were the monthly tournaments we were running. You know, we'd done the, you know, the Raby Knights and we'd done the Legend set. And then after that, we just started doing, um, Power Nine. So you would get the winner of the tournament would get all the power cards. Oh my goodness. Uh, and we would do that every month. Eventually they became known as thousand dollar tournaments because we would give you the option of winning a thousand dollars or winning, uh, the Power Nine. The tournament would start at noon and at 10, we would do this thing called a skills tournament, uh-huh. which was, I think it was two starters and you would build a deck and then you would just play as many matches as possible. And then the best record would win at Juzam Gin. <laughs> and John Finkel won the Juzam Gin like three months running. Oh my goodness. And we, we were like, who is this kid? And, you know, like, uh, someone watch him. You know, Tony, who was our judge, just go watch him play. And he's like, I just feel so dumb. You know, he's just like, this guy is so good and was just operating on this completely different axis than everyone else. You know, was actually like building a deck and, you know, like had this intuitive sense of a mana curve and, you know, just knew how to sequence his cards in a way that just ran rings around his opponent. And it was just kind of like, oh, wow. You know, it was that first glimpse of what, I mean, you know, I mean, he was the, he's the best magic player in the history of the game. So getting to see him, I mean, again, at 14 or 15, he was 14 or 15 years old at the time, you know, and, but you're like, oh my God. Wow. Yeah. I spoke to Chris Pakula earlier, and he said that when he won the Magic Invitational, he had gone to neutral ground on a draft, that first draft of like Invasion Plane Chase or something like that. Okay. And he opened his first booster, and it was a meddling mage. <laughs> Were you there that night? I was, pro- I was probably there. I don't, I don't actually remember that, but I, I was almost certainly there for that. That's great. And he said that he had signed them. And numbered them. And so I did this like blast out into the Twitter sphere about if anyone has a photo or even has them. And Chris said that he only, he's only seen one in the last decade. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to ask around about that. Cause I'm sure I'm, I'm still, I still play magic with a lot of the people who were old neutral ground regulars. We still play, you know, in a draft group and we'll, a lot of us will go to the complete strategist for pre-releases or go out to the geekery in queens for pre-releases so i'll I'll ask around i'll see if i can find one of those that's very i'm sure those someone has those somewhere (laughs) that's very funny yeah Yeah, chris bakula was one of the one of the early players who used to come to our store and doesn't get enough credit for the work he did to i don't know uh you know towards fair play and towards uh you know making the game uh really trying to hone in on that like let's let the best players rise to the top and not have to worry about appearances of impropriety even not so um one of the reasons that deck lists exist for limited is because of Chris Bakula he was just like i don't you know i, I you know i want to play in the sealed deck tournament but how do we do this 
you know, uh, do I, you know, do we, you know, can we write out our deck lists? You know, cause you, you would write out a deck list for constructed. And so we, we actually came up with an Excel. We ended up making like the first deck checklist because, and it was because of Pacola because he wanted to see that sort of like, I just want to know that the play level, the playing field is as level as possible. Mm hmm. You know, and was just someone who just always pushed to, to, you know, to get people who were bad for the game out of the game, who to, to make, uh, tournament operations as fair as possible. You know, just, just someone, I mean, I mean, uh, it's, it's a real shame to me that he, he's not on the Hall of Fame because, uh, he deserves it. Mm hmm. There were a lot of great players in their early days that went to neutral ground. Chris Pakula, John Finkel. Were there any others? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, so, just Hall of Famers to start. <laughs> you go, um, John Finkel, Steve O'Mahony Schwartz, uh, Zvi Moshewitz. Um, I think that's, is that it for our Hall of Famers? Yeah, I think off the top of my head. But then you had Dave Price, Chris Pakula, uh, you had Mike Pastelnik, who won, uh, a pro tour. Yeah. Um, you know, and even as you, go on through the years um you know other other great players would go through there um even it was funny recent just this past weekend um rob pisano uh made the finals of uh gp indianapolis and he's an old neutral ground player from like the mid 90 late 90s who was part of this long island crowd of like poker slash magic players who would come in for like all the ptqs and grand prix trials and all that kind of stuff so it's, it's been really great to see him coming back and doing really well at the game wow that is so awesome and then in 1996 you served as a judge at pro tour one i <laughs> i did i did uh, and uh, uh the whole group of us from Neutral Ground and Gray Matter, which were the two companies that were doing the monthly events and then the store, uh, all volunteered to work at the event, which several of the people I worked with never forgave me for. So like, I could have called, I could have played at the Pro Tour. <laughs> you know, it was, the, it was the one time where you could just dial in and play in a Pro Tour. Uh, yeah, I got, I got to, I got to work as a judge. I judged in the junior division upstairs. So Brian Kibler, Bob Maher, John Finkel, Steve Omoney Schwartz, V. Moshewitz. No, I don't think V had played in that one, but, but just, yeah, this like cast of all stars, <laughs> uh, who would go on to become, you know, the best players in the senior division, uh, over the next few years, but all, all started there at that first, uh, juniors pro tour because the, the way the tournament used to be broken up is under a certain age, you played juniors and you played for a scholarship at, on a, in a separate, out of a separate prize pool. That is so cool. I've been talking to some people about Pro Tour number one, this mythical event, and it was you would just call in. Yeah, yeah. I, I if you if you Google uh, oral history of the first Pro Tour, I uh, I wrote a pretty large piece about it where I interviewed uh, uh, the winner of the Pro Tour, Mike Lacanto. Interviewed the winner of the Juniors Pro Tour, Graham Todimer. Yeah, it was it was crazy. They they didn't know how to fill the event, so they. They pulled, they're like, okay, the winner of the Ice Age tournament, Dave Humphreys, like the winner of the Ice Age pre-release, you're invited. And the winner of this event, you're invited. And these top 25, you know, DCI members are invited. But they were like, how do we fill the tournament up? So they just opened up a phone bank and were like, call in. It filled up pretty quickly in the senior division. I think the junior division, you could still call the day before and still have gotten into the pro tour. Wow. Yeah. Um, Elaine Chase, the director of, uh, brand for senior director of brand for magic. She played in that event. Wow. Yeah. She called in. She, she used to actually work at Gray Matter. She was one of our judges. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was where we first uh, met her. 
Come to think of it, I'm thinking now. Where was I during that? I was 11. Where was I? I could have called in. <laughs> I could have called in. <laughs> too funny. Too funny. That's so funny. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was a crazy time. It was super fun. But uh, yeah, that event. That event was like. I don't think we had any sense of like. It's like. Well, will there be another one? You know. Is this? This was cool because it was the third event that they had tried to run. That was a major magic event. So they had run something in New York already called The Gathering, Mm -hmm. which was the Homelands pre-release, which was at the Millennium Hotel. And it was like super fancy and set set decorated. And there was like, you know, like immersive dominaria experience. Uh And there were like all these kind of like, not even cosplayers, but like costumed, like almost like there was like a minotaur and there was all this stuff going on. And it was also this Homelands pre-release, and that that was not a huge uh, success for them. I think it, you know they were still like trying to figure out what they wanted to do for these kind of events, and then they ran the Ice Age pre-release in Toronto, which was the only Ice Age pre-release. It was just like come to Toronto and play Ice Age sealed. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and that was that was you know how that got uh, that was how that set first got released. And uh, yeah, Dave Humphreys, who now is like the lead developer for Magic, uh, won that event. Cool. <laughs> but so this was like, so they had tried a couple different things. And this was the Pro Tour at the time. We were kind of like, oh, okay, well, they're, they're trying something again. You know, let's see. And but fortunately, by the time we got to Los Angeles for the second one on the boat, I think we kind of realized that it was going to stick. Yeah. Yeah. And then that Pro Tours were going to be a, a regular fixture in the Magic universe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, people pretty quickly figured out that they wanted to be qualified for the next one, you know? Yeah. Like that, that oh, how am I going to, how am I going to stay qualified for these? Right. Wow. So, what an exciting time. Yeah. It was, it was kind of amazing. It feels that in Magic history, so much has changed, but there's also been a lot of things that hasn't changed. The things that worked and felt right from the beginning stuck. The thing that Magic has always done well is hit a reset button. Mm. Uh, and I think that may be what you're talking about, that idea of like, here's a new Pro Tour. What's going to happen? What are people going to bring to the table? How are people going to beat the format? And then also, hey, here is, we're going to Kaladesh. What is that going to be like? What are the new mechanics? What are the new card types? What are the new, who are the new Planeswalkers? What are we going to be playing with for the next year and a half? Mm-hmm. And so that anticipation and that excitement, I guess that has always remained the same. And they've done a good job of plugging into that. You've done so much, Brian. You are now doing coverage. And then you also worked a little bit on Enter the Battlefield. So um, so from almost the first time that I was going to Pro Tours early on, I went to all the early Pro Tours just as part of like, hey, I'm going to represent Neutral Ground, or we sponsored a team of players. And, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is a really interesting lifestyle. This is a really interesting environment where people are trying to solve this puzzle of a new constructed format or a new draft. I've wanted this idea of a documentary like Enter the Battlefield to exist. Right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked about, like I remember talking about it in like the 90s, like, okay, so we'll rent an RV mm-hmm. and we'll just go to like every PTQ. Or we'll go like cross country hitting every PTQ yeah. until everyone in the RV is qualified. Yeah. We'll film everything and then we'll go to the pro tour, you know, like and see what, ha- you know, whatever, like some, you know, just like, you know, crazy two in the morning driving, you know, fantasies. My wife's like, no, you are not going on the road for two months in an RV. <laughs> but I've always wanted this this kind of thing to exist. 
And uh, somewhere, I don't even remember how, how long ago it was at this point, but um, around the same time that Nate and Sean were getting ready to make what would become Enter the Battlefield, I was working with a production company and had the rights to make a magic documentary called Enter the Battlefield, which was going to follow like Kai and John and Luis and, you know, their associate, you know, groups of playtest teams and really just try to get into what made the great players of the game great. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point found out that Nate and Sean were also working on something. And I was like, well, I don't want to, you know, I, I just want this to exist. I wasn't right. doing this because I'm a filmmaker. Like I, I'm a writer, but I'm not someone who has any experience making a film. So I'm like, I'm just going to back out of this and let them do their thing. And then at some point they were like talking about, naming the film and they were having a hard time. And I'm like, um, how about enter the battlefield? (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, well, aren't you? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I, I, you know, like if you guys are doing this, you should do this. You guys are super qualified to make this film. So you should definitely take the name if you think it's good enough. And they did. So that's very cool. That was my involvement. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. Yeah. It's kind of sad though, because I, I I think because they thought I was making a competing film, I didn't get to participate in it. Oh, so I'm like a little sad about that. Uh huh. You know, I would have liked to have, you know, talked about some of the great players that they interviewed, but I understand it. (laughs) Will you ever make the sequel? Maybe, maybe you can make, you can still make your movie. Uh, you know, I, I, I would rather see what they do as a sequel. Uh, it's not, that's not what I wanted to do it because it wasn't being done Uh and because I wanted it to exist. Uh, but it's not a, it's not a great passion of mine to make that, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great passion of mine for it to exist. Yeah. And so sometimes you're like, all right, well, if no one else is, you know, you look around and you're like, all right, no one else is stepping up here. I'll do it. Yeah. But once they stepped up, that was, it was a slam dunk for me to (laughs) put that aside. I would, I would be much more interested in writing the magic comic Mm-hmm. You know, ah. than uh, than doing a, a movie about magic players. That's great. We'll take a little break here. There seems to be an emergency <laughs> going on outside. Some hot tech. Yeah, there's something going on. Brian, I also want to talk to you about your role on coverage. You have the official title of magic historian. Uh, actually, it's pro tour historian. Pro tour historian. Yeah, not magic historian. I, I think that probably falls unofficially to Mark. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, pro tour historian is kind of a, a weird title. It's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, mostly it pertains to being the curator for the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, part of the process of, you know, pulling the ballot, you know, working through the whole process of getting the ballot pulled together, getting information disseminated. And, uh, then once our Hall of Fame class is elected, I would say I caretake a lot of history of the game, mm-hmm. but, I think historian has some pretty specific connotations that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I don't know what would be a better title for it, but, you know, that's, you know, it's like people are like, all right, who finished 33rd at Pro Tour New World? I don't know, dude, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to Google it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And it wouldn't be as fun to call you like the magic librarian. Right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I understand now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, um, you've seen so many players play at such a high level. I've seen you at GPs and things, and, and you would uh, pull players aside and be like, hey, do you want to talk about some decks? What goes into that process of you selecting a player in a deck? Wow, uh, that's a great question. It's really a matter of a number of factors. So there's certainly the excitement level. Like, So we were just at Grand Prix Portland. 
and uh, Chris Botello was playing Grixis Pact, mm-hmm. right? Or Gr- free kittens. Cat know? Pact. I'm not on. I'm not on coverage right now. I can call it free kittens. <laughs> free kittens. Yeah, I'm on my own time. God damn it. And so he was playing this Grixis uh, Harmless Offering deck with Demonic Pact. So that deck's super exciting, right? Like that's, you know, the deck you want, you want to do a deck tech on. That's the deck you want to do. You want that on feature coverage. You want to talk to that player. Then there's other times where it's the player, right? Like very specifically the player. Like, so it's like you go to an event and I can tell you right now, the first thing you do is you flip through the deck, you know, the file folder of decks that's backstage and you go to B and you look up Sam Black, right? And then you go to C and you look up Pat Shape, Patrick Chapin. And then, you know, I'll go to S and I'll look up Shaheen Sarani because I want to like, well, what kind of control deck did he play? What weird deck did Sam decide to, to, to bring to the event? You know, what's Patrick's take on the format? What, you know, there's, you know, some, some pretty singular voices in the deck building community. Uh, and those are, those are the ones that I'm most attracted to, uh, in terms of doing, doing deck techs. Like it doesn't always have to be the best deck. Cause sometimes that could be, you know, we, we know that company, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we know how it works. We've seen it. We've talked about it. Ideally, when it first came out, there was a, a piece on it, but like the, the thought process that goes into, attacking the metagame and coming up with a deck. And I, I have to admit, I just I have a fondness for people who march to the beat of their own drummer because it's there's so much uh, homogenization of, of, of deck and strategy and things get so muddy, you know, the Jund Abzan, you know, like when you have enough mana fixers that you can just throw things together and you get four color decks that are really hard to separate from each other. Right. Yeah, I love when someone can just go, you know what? In the face of all this, I'm going to build my deck. Mm -hmm. I'm going to build my deck. I'm going to play it. I I don't care if, you know, one of the reasons that Shaheen Sarani first sort of, I became aware of him is he would always play like four mana counter spells (laughs) at a time where just no one was playing any counter spells, right? He'd be like playing like dismiss, you know, and rewind. And you're like, what? (laughs) You know, what are you doing? How do you do this? (laughs) You know, finding a way, finds a way to make it work. I mean, maybe not at the highest level of success, but I, I, I there's something about that, uh, Don Quixote type of, uh, expression in deck building that I love. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think connects for a lot of people watching at home, right? Because you're like, okay, I want to be able to bring my deck. Yes. I want to be able to bring my deck to the Pro Tour. I want to bring my Black Red Vampires deck. I don't want to play Bant Company, right? I, I right. Mean, maybe you do. That's great. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. You should. Yeah. It's probably the best deck, right? You should probably play Bant <laughs> Company. But you know what? If you, you know, if you can find a way to make your deck work, you know, I, I love um, Zach Elsek, right? Like, this is a guy who's like, okay, how do I solve this puzzle of building a deck around Lantern, uh, you know, Lantern Control? How do I build this? Right. And, you know, like, the the you know you can really see the thought process when you lay that deck out and you watch him play it you can see the thought process of why every card is in there and you know you really it's it's beautiful right like it might not be a fun deck to watch play <laughs> but it's really this like kind of beautiful expression of deck design yes so I, that that's I guess that's kind of what I look for I mean obviously you just want to be like hey we we you know Luis we want to talk to you about how you've built Band Company. But we also want to talk to maybe someone you don't, you're not as familiar with who took an interesting approach. And, and even if it's not the ideal deck yet, it's a great, you know, I love that process also of like, Hey, we're going to talk about 
Amulet Bloom before it's fully Amulet Bloom, and then maybe people are like, "Oh yeah, that deck was pretty interesting. How do we how do we iterate on this?" You know, and so I, I like I like those decks where you're getting that discussion started. That's fascinating. And just a small aside, I was sitting at GP Portland. This was on Friday, and it was um, one of the first last chance qualifiers. And I was sitting there, and uh, it was just a table of us 16 or 32. And I look over, and then you were like talking to my friend Thomas, and you were like, hey, you know, you got a really interesting deck there, and, uh, you know, would you like to talk about it? And uh, Thomas is like, I think he's like 16, and he's pretty quiet. And he just looked at you with a really blank stare, was like, no, <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. I, I, I'm not interested in that sort of stuff. And I was cracking up inside because I was like, what is must be going through BDM's head right now? Well, what, what is, what, so, what's his deal? He's just... He's super quiet okay. and he's just super chill. Yeah. And, and he does crack... I have gotten him to crack a smile every <laughs> once in a while at FNM. And it's, he's super funny. He plays in the local Seattle area at Mox Porting House. And, yeah. and I know him, but he's, he's a very good magic player. And I yeah. think that you picked that out Absolutely. of the game. And that's why Absolutely. you wanted to talk to him. Yeah. But later on, I even wanted to nudge him. I was like, Thomas, you should. Like, you know, that's it's you're getting some rep here. You're a good player. Right. Well, I mean, there, there's there's certainly some I don't want to say value, but like, I mean, if you're if you are someone who's good, like you do want to have a little bit of a platform to talk about magic and sort yeah. of, you know, sort of strut your stuff a little bit. Yeah. Like and be smart and articulate about magic. Uh, you know, there's money to be made there. <laughs> there is, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you know, magic articles don't go up for free. That's right. You know, that's something I don't know that everyone at home fully appreciates. Mm. You know, that, that, uh, you know, we talked very er much earlier in this podcast about like making a living in comics because it was something that I was passionate about. You know, that's something you can do in magic that there's this, you know, real way to support yourself playing magic by talking about magic by playing magic, you know, on a stream, by creating a podcast, by doing YouTube videos, by just, you know, like actively participating in the game and the community that surrounds it, you know, people will compensate you for that time and that energy and that effort. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and especially if you're, you know, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I think it's an opportunity also as a, for a player that, I know, you know, you and I talked about what motivated you to make this podcast. You mm -hmm. talked about the idea of feeling maybe a little disconnected, a little disconnected, and yeah. maybe a little rusty, even yeah. as a player when you're creating magic content and you're very engaged in that process and you're thinking about it and you're talking to other people about it and you're brainstorming ideas. That's really when you're, you're going to be playing your best magic too, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's interesting, this journey that I've been going on myself. I've learned quite a lot about magic recently just by asking people, uh, and I'll ask you later also, you know, how to improve, what things to think about. And they are quite the simplest things. And also, Brian, I wanted to go back to what you were talking about is um, when you do uh, find a player who has that je ne sais quoi, they kind of understand magic and they play at a pretty high level. One of the ways that I got back into playing standard was watching deck techs, just having people lay out the cards and let's talk about them. Yeah, sure. I know that there's four copies of this and four copies of that, but oftentimes I don't know why. Right. And right. Uh, Rich Hagen on an episode of Constructed Resources with Marshall talked about that the deck list sometimes is a really bad vehicle for explaining magic because in the same amount of space that you could have four Monastery Swift Spears, you could also write one. And that makes a very big difference in the deck. Um, and just kind of going on that concept is that, you know, I've always professed that magic is an incredibly deep game. Yeah, it's deep and, and, I, and I don't think uh, fully solved. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I, I mean, magic's never going to be fully solved, right? Because there's just this constant uh, turnover of cards and ideas and strategies. But like that, that the optimal numbers, you know, it, it would, you know, it's not solved. Like it's like there was a time where people never played four, mm-hmm. right? They would always cram all these different cards in. And, and that was obviously not correct. If you look at the first Necropotence decks that came out after a Pro Tour New York, the first Pro Tour, there would be like three Necros. Uh, three dark rituals, two demonic consultations, right? Like, like these just really kind of like gross numbers <laughs> that made no sense. And there was, that was a deck that you really wanted, you know, four, four, four. Yeah. You wanted, you wanted as many opportunities as possible to be able to go ritual into necropotence on turn one, right? Or, mm-hmm. or, you know, ritual, ritual, necro, him, you, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as the, as the game goes along, you know, there is, right, like you said, that opportunity to be like, okay, well, I only have, if you envision a deck as slots of four cards, right? When I, when I want to test a deck and I don't have the cards yet, I'll often make a grid of 15 boxes and I'll write eight, uh, ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, jack, queen, king, and then two joker slots. And I have this deck called, uh, a wizard deck, which is mm-hmm. a 60 card, playing card deck that has four jesters and four wizards. Mm -hmm. And so you can just write in a deck Mm -hmm. in those slots. So you can be like, ace is birds of paradise and two is Lanoir elves and three is rampant growth and four is, you know, whatever terrible deck I'm building here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you can also break things down even within, right? And you can say the, well, the king of spades is my one of, you know, you know, Ulrock of the Kralen Horde, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and this is my one this. So you can do that. But if you think about a deck as being 15 spots, right, where you cannot exceed four. Right. Right, you know, of any not, you know, you know other than the basic lands, it becomes really constraining when you're building that deck, right? Because there's a lot of things you want to do. Yeah. And so where do you, where do you shave that one card? Where do you shave two cards? How much... You know, that, that idea of how much of my deck will I see, right? How much velocity, which is a term I just use to describe how quickly will I go through the cards in my deck? Not necessarily card drawing, but like just being able to like look and dig, you know, ponders and preordains and those kind of cards that I can afford to run more two, two ofs, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm, you know, likely to see it or I don't need to see it early. So there, that, you know, that constraint of like, Working within those 15 bricks. That's what I always think of when I think of a deck. I think of it as 15 bricks. And, uh, it's, it's tough, especially if you, you know, you, you fall in love with cards and you want to play with, uh, right. some stuff. Uh, you know, it'd be like, oh, I can't get it all in here. Right. You know, yeah. And, and people always, I could tell you right now, you're going to ask, you said you're going to ask me about like, uh, you know, uh, a thing about, you know, how do you get better at magic? I can tell you right now, stop shaving lands. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because ultimately what always happens in this, this scenario, and I know I'm guilty of it too, is you look at those 15 bl- bricks and you're like, I can't give up anything of these cards. And then you just feel like, well, I've got like, you know, I've got eight slots here for lands and then I've got two lands up in that slot. That's 26 lands. I could, I could cut, <laughs> you know, I could probably cut two lands, you know. That's always where people will make the mistake when they're building a deck is they'll they'll try to shave off the shave off some lands to make room for some more cards. Didn't Paul Rietzel famously say, "Take your deck and just add one more basic in it"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's true. It's just like, uh, I mean, that that was my you know just in in terms of like our local playtest group for PTQs and stuff like that. That was always all, also my role all the time. Like for Mike Flores, who I do a podcast with and have played Magic with for ever 
my my sort of like job is to sort of slap him with a fish and say, add another land to the deck. <laughs> yeah. And speaking about Mike Flores, you edited and uh, published his book called Decade. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that's actually how I got into podcasting was Mike and I started doing the Top 8 Magic podcast uh, just, you know, basically as a promotional vehicle for Decade. Uh, so it's Top 8 Magic is a company I started, you know, we were, we were toying around with the idea of uh, publishing books. We did two books, actually. Uh, we did Decade with Mike Flores, which collected the first 10 years of his writing about magic. So he wrote about magic on the Usenet groups. He wrote about it on a couple of different websites, uh, wrote some pretty important articles about the theory of magic, um, most famously, uh, Who's the Beatdown, which mm-hmm. was this really – almost hackneyed at this point, right? It's been discussed so much, but uh, at the time was this kind of like, you know, that, that same thing we talked about, about Nevernal's disc and Misha Chat. was like, oh, wait a minute. I can sort of pivot within a game to be the beatdown player or the control player. It was a revolutionary concept. Uh, and so we, we sort of captured all of his writing from that time, collected it, and got Mike to write a couple of interstitials about where he was at each sort of stage of his magic writing career. Actually, the book's on sale right now from, <laughs> if you go to fetchland.com, you'll be able to find something there. But, um, but yeah, you know, we still have a couple copies left, but it was, it was super fun to, to publish. And, uh, it was one of the first of the sort of modern era of magic books to come out. Very cool. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon Kindle too. Yes, that's right. I was looking at that. I couldn't get an excerpt, but I wanted to. That was it. Was really fascinating. Yeah, Mike Flores uh, is a prolific writer. Yeah. Oh, he he is uh, after uh, Mark Rosewater. I think the next most prolific magic writer. Wow. Yeah. We also did my files with V Moshewitz because V was also. Uh, I did a, an oral history of the Magic Dojo for the daily uh, for daily MTG, and in there I we talked I talked to Zvi about this idea of writing for the Magic Dojo, which was this you know seminal magic website, the first magic website. Yeah, uh, and we collected a bunch of his early uh, Usenet writing, his early writing for uh, a number of different websites, and so yeah, we we did that also. It's called My Files Part One, which is a play on I don't know if you remember Zvi's famous tournament report called my fires Uh, and it was mm -hmm. seven parts (laughs) that's definitely a lot of content there being created and so you know we talked about this a little bit brian but you have watched a lot of magic you've watched the best in the history of the game all over the world what advice do you have for players aspiring to get better and get onto the pro tour I mean, watch those, watch the best players play the game, find the best player at your store, watch them, understand what they do, what, you know, think about what you would do in each situation, you know, just, just kind of role play what that person's going to do. And then when they don't do what you would do, don't be like, the hell's wrong with this person? I would do this. I mean, you might be right or even right. I'm not saying that you're not better than that, but you know, it's someone who you, you think you have reasonable expectation of being better. And then Think about why they did that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe in a very polite way, ask them why they did that. Right. Go, hey, listen, I was watching you play and I saw that you could have played this on turn one, but instead you played a tap land and, you know, waited a turn, you know, because, you know, why? why? I would have just gotten that, you know, I would have just gotten that, you know, expedition envoy right in there. What? Why did you do it that way? And find out, right? And get, get, capture some of that thought. But, and then also, I mean, just watch, you know, Owen Turtlewald if he's streaming, watch Luis Scott Vargas if he's streaming, you know, just avail yourself of the best magic players and just like study at their feet. You know, Oliver to you, 
who is the rookie of the year this year. Uh, he's the constructed master. He's going to be playing this week at the world championship. You know, very young player who literally did not play on the pro tour before this season, you know, talk to him about, you know, who he looks up to. And he's like, well, you know, I just watch whatever Owen's doing. I, when I'm not playing magic, I go watch Owen play magic when Owen's, whenever Owen streams, which is not enough for him, you know, he's <laughs> like, I watch Owen stream. And, you know, he's, he's someone who just said, this is the best player in the game right now. And I'm going to understand what he does. And I could tell you that early in his career, you know, I've had Mike Sigrist and William Jensen both comment to me that they knew Oliver from their local magic scene. And, you know, it's clear that Oliver put himself in their path, right? Do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. and availed himself of their knowledge and their experience in a, in a way that was respectful and, you know, somewhat, you know, they're like, oh, okay, this is a kid who's going to be pretty good. And, you know, they were, they, you know, there was some mutual respect there and he was able to take advantage of that to heighten his game. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the simple answer is just always find someone better than you, watch what they're doing and just step up your game and, and just constantly chase whatever's ahead of you, you know, and don't, um, you know, and, and losing is, is good. I mean, that's really yeah. like, you know, don't, don't get, you know, there, there's a lot, there's some variance in the game and it can be really frustrating. And you know what? You can, if you watch, uh, you know, some great players streaming, you know what? You'll see them lose in the first round of three, eight, fours in a row sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, you know, they don't, and they don't go, oh, I suck and quit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, un understanding some of that variance. But I, I think watching the best players play and watching their decisions and then, you know, trying to figure out their process mm -hmm. is, is just super important. And Brian, what advice do you have for new players just starting off in the game? Uh, wow. Uh, I would, I would, for a new player just starting out, uh, so like starting out from zero, I would tell a player, someone's like, Oh, I, I saw the world championship on, on Twitch and it seemed so cool and it was so exciting. Uh, I want to play magic. If you're just by yourself, I would just say download duels, mm -hmm. download duels of the planeswalkers, whatever it is. And it's not purely magic, mm -hmm. but. In terms of a solitaire experience to learn how to play the game, there's nothing like it. Yeah. And it, it's honestly better than forcing someone to teach you how to play. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's just such a, that's such a feel bad experience <laughs> for like both sides of that equation. <laughs> right. You know, like it's just like, all right, let's play magic. Uh, I'll show you how to play or right, you're going to beat me this game. Cause I'm going to, you know, like yeah. you're either condescending to your opponent as the person in the, seat teaching the game, you know, or kind of stomping on your opponent. <laughs> like, and just, and you can never give them enough repetitions of your time. But That's like true. with duels, uh, you can actually just get as many repetitions as you want by yourself. Yeah. And like start to sort of puzzle out how things work. Again, it's not a perfect replication of, of magic because magic's this kind of like, you know, messy game with a yeah. lot of like moving parts that you'll, you'll need to learn. And then, you know, I, I, I always think you go to a pre-release. Yeah. Uh, from there, like the, to me, the perfect thing to do if you're getting back into the game, if you're just getting started playing the game is a pre-release because you know what? You're going to meet a great group of people from your local area. Yeah. Go to the same local store that you do. And hey, when do you guys play? When are you guys doing this again? What's, what's draft night here? When's what, you know, and they'll, you'll, you'll start to just fall into the cycle of playing with, with people in your area. And, and, and that to me is, is the best place to jump on at any point is, is a pre-release because it's a pretty level playing field. Right. Right. We all get the same materials to work with. 
you know, I would say listen to Marshall and Luis do their set review on limited resources That's right. the night before you go to the pre-release. Uh, read a bunch of articles about what, what, you know, what some of the top players are suggesting are the good cards in limited. Build a 40 card deck, play 17 lands, and, you know, I'll see you at the Pro Tour in two years. Yeah, that's wonderful. Brian, what's coming up for you? What's new? What's next? Wow. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I have, I have some sort of non magic stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, in addition to doing all this, I'm a, I'm a game designer and a, uh, storyteller. And so I have a, a game called Emergence uh, Genesis, mm-hmm. which is a deck building game that uh, I was involved with the design of, but it's actually someone else's game design. But what uh, makes it so passionate for me is it's a based in a world that I created, uh, collaborated with comic book artist Steve Ellis to create the superhero universe. Uh-huh. That is a love letter to the superhero genre of comics. Yeah. Uh, created characters that are just like pulled from like these different eras of comics, you know, pulled from like my love of like 60s Justice League comics to like 80s X-Men comics mm-hmm. to like those 90s gritty comics. There's like all these different tiers of um, superheroes. And we created this world that they exist in with this really complex backstory, but you know, they're pretty straightforwardly fun. And so there's this deck building game called Emergence Genesis. Uh, it's out right now where uh, you can order it from Channel Fireball or from Cool Stuff Inc. I know they both have copies in stock, or you could ask your local game store to order it from uh, ACD Distribution. But, uh, you know, right now uh, I am gearing up to release a digital graphic novel with these characters. Uh, I've been working with Steve Ellis, so we're going to do a, a graphic novel, which is kind of going to just tell the story, uh, you know, one big story with a group of these characters. We're talking about getting our game into mass market. Very cool. So hopefully, hopefully I'll have a big announcement about that early next year. But uh, that's that's what's going on right now for that. And then uh, I'm I'm looking forward to restarting uh, my kitchen table channel. I, I do kitchen table gaming, Ooh. which is a YouTube channel about my love for food. Yeah. So I, I'm an amateur cook, and so I have some friends over. We play a board game. We've played. Uh, arena of the planeswalkers we played commander yeah we played uh, emergence genesis yeah we played my favorite board game of all time uh judge dread oh. from games workshop okay. it's like the, the old judge dread it's a not a it's not a super great game but it's like my favorite game <laughs> just because i played i've played it more times than any other game ever with my you know group of friends that i grew up with yeah uh, and then I make uh, food. Yeah. And so I make a meal and, you know, maybe there's some, some, some connection between the food and the game uh, thematically. And then we just eat food and play games. That's so cool. I'm a big foodie myself. And I spoke to David Ochoa, and he also is a big fan of food. I noticed on his tweets that it was always about bread. <laughs> so he <laughs> likes bread and preserves and things like that. But what kind of foods do you like, Brian? Oh, man, I, I love everything. Uh, food is like I, very similar to my philosophy of deck building. I love that, like putting stuff together. Uh-huh. All the all the recipes on the show that I do are my own creations. Oh, so uh, for example, I did a falafel slider, uh-huh. which is taking a falafel patty, making it a little thicker, a little bigger, slicing it open, mm-hmm. and using it as the bun for a sandwich. Oh. Where you take a wedge of feta cheese, a little bit of like a hummus spread, some lettuce, tomato, and onion. Maybe, maybe if I wasn't making a vegetarian version, a lamb patty. Yeah. And then making a, a burger where the falafel is serving as the bun. Yeah. Or 
taking the Magnolia uh, banana pudding recipe and turning it into Elvis banana pudding, <laughs> where you're making it with like peanut butter and uh, bacon pieces. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. So I just enjoy, I enjoy coming up with new twists on things that I enjoy. Like I just get inspired to make something. That is so wonderful. Well, I will have all of these links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Brian, any parting words for us? You know, play magic, read comics, make food. <laughs> uh, if you like those things, I talk about the, all of those things on the Top 8 Magic podcast, uh, which you can find at facetofacegames.com. Uh, I've also recently started a second Top 8 Magic podcast, which is called Top 8 Magic, The Decks to Beat. Uh, so the first one is with Mike Flores. The second one is with Gabe Carlton Barnes. And we talk about what you need to do uh, to deal with the metagame after last weekend's events. Mm-hmm. So like this week, we're talking about modern, right? We have 190 something modern deck lists to, to look at. Like, how do you build a sideboard? How do you prepare yourself for a modern event over these next couple of weeks? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Top 8 Games. You can order Emergence Genesis from Cool Stuff Inc. and ChannelFireball.com. Go watch uh, the four episodes I did of Kitchen Table Gaming. Uh, I promise uh, I'm, ki- yeah, Kitchen Table Gaming. I'm confused for a second. <laughs> Not too many kitchen tables here. And I, I expect to be doing some new episodes of that in the, in the new year. Very cool. Very exciting. Well, Brian, David, Marshall, BDM, thank you so much for joining us today on Kitchen Table Magic. Thanks, Sam. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Brian David Marshall. It was such a treat to listen to him share about the history of magic. The next time you're at a large tournament and there are side events, you know who to thank. BDM. Go say hi to BDM on Twitter at Top8Games. I'll have links in the show notes to a picture of an early flyer for BDM's early magic tournament. Also, check out BDM's cooking show on YouTube, Kitchen Table Gaming. Again, I'll have those links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. We have the winner for our giveaway for a box of Modern Masters 2017. And our winner is, drumroll please, William Evans. Congratulations, William. You are our lucky winner. I'll be reaching out to you soon to ship you that box of Modern Masters 2017. Remember, this giveaway was brought to you by the awesome gamers at Paragon City Games. With their generous support, I'm able to do a giveaway for the show. A lot of my interview with Brian David Marshall talked about the importance of having a space for the magic community to play and gather in. And that is why Paragon City Games care so deeply about creating a space for their community. They have a beautiful open showroom with plenty of space for weekly magic events. Paragon City Games also streams their in-store weekly events at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. This was part three of my four-part series with the legendary Magic coverage team. If you heard my episode with Marshall Sutcliffe, we spoke about Marshall's favorite marinara sauce recipe. Then, when I sat down with BDM, he gave me the super secret sauce recipe. If you want to hear it, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic and become a supporter. Once there, all Patreon insiders will gain exclusive access to behind-the-scenes content and special episodes that I don't normally release. 
I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James, Marcus, Alexander, and Trevor for your support. There are not many high-quality magic podcasts that dive into the backstory of the community's most prominent members. If you appreciate me tracking down all these magic A-listers for a lengthy interview, then you'll certainly appreciate supporting Kitchen Table Magic with $1, $3, or $6 a month at patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic. Remember, all of my Patreon supporters get access to extra audio content, behind-the-scenes show notes, and special gifts from my interviews. I still have available four signed cards by Marshall Sutcliffe from our Crack-A-Pack. All new $6 level Patreon supporters will get access to their choice of a foil rusted relic, reassembling skeleton, celestial purge, or a foil dread drone. Head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic today. Thanks to everyone tuning into this week's show. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM podcast. Like the show on facebook.com slash kitchen table magic podcast. All episodes with show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... One of the first tournaments I played, the tournament happened at a beekeeper store. It was like this giant warehouse space. This guy clearly, you know, his day job, he was a beekeeper and he was selling honey. And he just like, there was this glass case where there was honey and then there were singles. And the warehouse space had tables that had been converted into a tournament space, right? This is, you know, 1995. So I go to play this just random tournament. I had this, you know, green white deck. Elves seemed good. You know, I'm using my land where elves to accelerate into Sarah Angels. This kind of deck. And... My roommate, Jason, had said, well, throw in this Armageddon card. This card looks good. I owned one copy of Armageddon. I threw it in my deck and I play this game where I'm like, okay, elf, turn three, earn him, Jin, turn four, Armageddon. I'm like, I've got a four five in play. My opponent has no lands. Oh my God. Like, it's just one of these, wow, this deck's amazing. I looked down at my hand. I'm like, I really got to take the killer bees out of this deck now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, killer bees is green mana for plus one plus ones you're supposed to just get you a know, three mana oh one creature with forest breathing i guess you'd call it not very good in an armageddon deck so stumbled into the ernageddon strategy more or less on my own but the killer beast did not make the cut in that deck that was randy bueller hall of famer and former magic commentator such irony for randy to realize that he needed to cut the killer bees while playing in a beekeeper's warehouse Randy tells us those old school stories and how the OGs influenced modern magic that we see today. Join me and Magic Hall of Famer Randy Bueller all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.